Well, um, I was reminded this week that uh, at my first summer at Camp Quanos, um, I I was after my first summer, I was really struggling because um, it's a lot of talks that you have to do there. And, um, and so as I started thinking about coming back the next year, um, I wasn't sure how I was going to fill the morning talk. So there's a morning talk that's that they wanted it to be shorter, and they wanted it to kind of be a teaser for the evening talk, which was longer. And so um, as I was thinking about it and preparing, I was, it was so overwhelming because I just thought, you know, it's 11 talks. So to think about stories and illustrations and trying to come up with ideas for what I'm going to say that's new or different and just it seemed like so much stuff and, and instead of just the six evening talks. And so I came up with this idea that I, would, I was going to be an anti-character for the theme. So like, you know, connected to the theme, but I would be this kind of antithesis of Jonathan. So whatever Jonathan was teaching, this character would say the opposite kinds of things and, um, and they would kind of end up in hilarious kind of results. And so these characters were, you know, different, had different names over the years. It was like safety man was one year and then spaceman spiff and then Ricky rocker and Andy adrenaline and karate Ken and um, and so they would refer to Jonathan by name, you know, they would do something crazy and then they'd be like, oh, this reminds me of how Jonathan always says blah, blah, blah. And then they would say some kind of lesson. And so and the kids thought it was hilarious and, you know, the, the staff loved it and everything. But the thing that surprised me was that that I didn't I wasn't prepared for was that the kids um, being eight to 11, they didn't realize it was me, even though I wasn't dressed up that much at first, you know, the first characters were like, not that disguised, but the kids thought it, they didn't think it was me. They thought it was someone else. They would come and say, is that your brother? Who is that? Who's doing that? And, and so, you know, it became quite funny that, that over time, you know, this character was took on this whole other pers per persona and the kids who did realize it was me, there's always some kids, they would spend hours and, and all sorts of time trying to convince all the other kids that this was really Jonathan. You know, they'd say, no, it really is Jonathan. Now, my own kids were never fooled at all. My, my own kids always knew exactly who it was because they knew me. And if you knew me, you would know it was me. Like I wasn't that disguised, really. And Jesus says an interesting thing in our passage today. He says, if you knew me, you would know the Father. If you knew me, if you know me, you will know the Father. Our sermon series is, we're calling it a few last things, and it's uh, focused on what Jesus says to his disciples on that night before he's betrayed and killed. And it's the night before his followers break and run and, and everything kind of collapses and they watch their hopes and dreams for this coming kingdom just dashed on this Roman cross. And uh, so, so the big question is, you know, what does Jesus say and do on this mo very important night? What is he saying and doing? And we've seen in the last few weeks, as we've looked at this passage, we've seen Jesus get up from the table and take a basin and wash his disciples' feet and tell them, command them to do the same. 
We've seen uh, him warn them that one of them was going to betray and then Judas leaves and warn them that, you know, Peter's going to deny. And of course, we know they're all going to break and run. But um, but then and Jesus commands them to love one another as the greatest witness. And he warns them also that he's leaving and he's going to prepare a place for them. And then we, we hear how Thomas, you know, ver- verbalizes their confusion. They're all confused. And Thomas is the one who says it. Thank you, Thomas. And Jesus answers with this beautiful statement. We heard it last week where Jesus claims to be the only way to the father, the way, the truth, and the life. And so that's where our passage picks up today. So I'm going to read that part and then we'll go into our passage. It's John chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. So if you have uh, if you have a Bible, you can read along or I'll read it for you. John chapter 14, verses 7 to 14. Jesus answered. So verse 6, I'll read from verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. This is God's word. Woo, it's a good one. Oh my goodness. Our big idea this morning is this. Jesus is our clearest view of God. Believing this results in action. Jesus is our clearest view of God. Believing this results in action. To know and to see, to know and to see, this is what we we see first of all, is this idea of knowing and seeing Jesus. You know, if we look at the life of Jesus, there's all sorts of of strange things that, that happen and that he does. You know, he calls these rough around the edges fishermen to come and follow him. And then he's calling a tax collector. And then he's calling a zealot, like a revolutionary. You know, you just, if you really think about it, you wonder how all those people could possibly get along. And he takes them and they follow him. They become his disciples for three years. Uh, there's another story where he refuses to condemn a woman caught in adultery. And everyone's ready to throw rocks. And Jesus is the one stepping in, standing in the gap there. He talks to a a Samaritan woman at the well, like a woman of, you know, she's been married a bunch of times and she's at the well at the wrong time of the day. He he invites women to come and follow and to learn from him. He lets the prostitute wash his feet with her tears and her hair. Like, does he know who's touching him? They think Jesus heals, heals the sick, even on the Sabbath. 
and multiplies wine for the party and food for the crowd. He goes to dinner with sinners and the Pharisees end up, uh, you know, their, their negative term for him is a glutton and a drunkard. That's kind of what they call him behind his back, a glutton and a drunkard. And then he does things like he yells at the religious elite, that, that kind of those people who think they're the most spiritual. He's like yelling at them and calling them names like brood of vipers and whitewashed tombs. Like he's angry. Jesus surprised everyone. I mean, he was this was not what they thought the Messiah would be like. Not at all. They they thought he couldn't be God because he's too loving and he's too generous and he's too willing and he's not holy enough. He's not angry enough. He's not discriminating enough to be God here. But Jesus says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. You know, isn't this our... Isn't this our struggle as humans? We want to like, you know, we're wondering like, what is God like? Isn't that the, like when people explore religions, all sorts of different religions to try to find out, you know, what is God like? And different religions are trying to answer that question. What is God like? Oh, he's like this, or he's like that. And, and so we look at all these things, you know, what is God like? It's a human question we have. And the, the God of Israel says of himself in Exodus chapter 36, you know, when God speaks his name, in front of Moses, this is what God says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and comp- uh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. And I think the last part is what makes us nervous. The beginning part we're great with, but the last part is like, ooh, what does that mean? You know, this, the God of wrath and justice is, makes us nervous and is confusing to us. What, what does that look like? And, and is that justice? Or like, we, we have a hard time with it. But Jesus says, if you want a clear picture of God, look at me. That's what Jesus says. If you want a clear picture of God, look at me. I remember getting an email when I was a pastor at Maple Ridge Community Church, and I would preach, you know, once a month or so. And after one Sunday, so I got an email on Monday, and the email was from somebody. I didn't know them, but apparently they'd been in the service, and they said, um, you know, you really blew it this Sunday. God, the Father, is angry with you because you talk too much about Jesus, And so God, the father is jealous and you talk, you know, you need to start talking about the father more and Jesus less. And I was like, I was shocked. I didn't, I was like this, I I don't even know how to respond. This is so weird to me. You know, like I, I, I don't even can't even fathom that this is what someone could think because we don't believe that just, I just want to be really clear. We don't believe that you could talk too much about Jesus that the father would be upset because uh, Jesus and says, you know, when you see me, you see the father. So it's impossible. Not only do we talk a lot about Jesus, but we, especially as Mennonite brethren, one of our things is like, we look at all of the Bible, all of scripture through Jesus lenses. So it's like, 
our church, our denomination, this, this community, this group of people like to take Jesus glasses and put them on and we read the rest of the Bible through those Jesus glasses. It's how we understand all of it. We know God through Jesus. And there's two different kinds of knowing. There's even in our passage. So there's the word no, it's translated, you know, for us as no. And then there's the word no, like understand no, both K-N-O-W, but they are different Greek words and they kind of mean different things. The first one has to do with information, like perceiving or understanding information. And the second one is a little different. You know, when Jesus says, if you really know me, it's not just about information. It means to know or to come to know or to recognize or to understand. And sometimes this word is used when they're talking about uh, sexual relations. Like, uh, you know, if you said, you know, Abraham knew his wife, Sarah, and it's kind of that understanding of like, and then they had a baby, you know, like it's an intimate kind of knowing. And now this reference isn't to that, but it gives you a sense of the word. There's an intimacy, an understanding, a recognition that goes beyond just information. Like it's one thing for me to say, I know how to get to the mall. And it's another thing for me to say, I know Lauren, who I've been married to for almost 19 years. That's a different knowing. It goes beyond just kind of information. So here's the the thing. Jesus says, we can know God because we can know Jesus. The God who is mysterious and unknowable in some ways says, I have made myself known in the person of Jesus. So here's our question this morning. What is a characteristic of Jesus? So if you know some stories about Jesus or you know, you know some characteristics about him, what is a characteristic of Jesus and therefore of God that you appreciate? So when you think about Jesus, who he is, his life, the stories about him, um, the teaching he, he gave, what's, what's a characteristic of Jesus that you appreciate uh, that is also a characteristic then of God? Um, let's break into our groups now. Well, we also see that we can see and believe in God or believe God. Um, one of my favorite incarnation stories, and that is like means God coming down and becoming a human. My, my favorite illustration still, I, I've, I keep looking for a good, good illustrations that represent kind of God coming down and becoming human. And I still can't get past my favorite one, which is uh, the Adele lookalike story. And, uh, and that's, you know, Adele and BBC decided to send her to her own lookalike contest. So they were having an Adele lookalike contest. And so Adele decides she's going to go be there. And so she dresses up, she gets a different nose and she, removes her bum chin, as she likes to say, smooths it out. And she, um, she, she changes her accent and she takes the name Jenny, Jenny. And she's this nanny and she goes, if you haven't watched it, you should watch it. It's, it's, it's a great, great YouTube video. And uh, she goes and she gets in line with these other contestants and they're all talking about how much they love Adele and all the different mannerisms she has. And and she makes fun of herself in the line and, you know, and she acts all nervous. And then each one of them goes on the stage and they perform a song from Adele. And then they go and they sit down in the front row and they watch the next person perform. And so by the end, it's everyone who's in the contest is sitting in the front row and 
she's the last person to go. And she gets up on stage and she acts nervous and she kind of false starts. And they're all talk. Oh no, Jenny's nervous. Oh yeah. She was, she almost threw up back there and you know, they're all worried for her. And then, and then she starts singing and it's like this powerful moment where the people in the front row, some of them immediately say, oh, it's her. They recognize her voice and they say, it's her, it's her. And the other person says, no, it can't be her. And they listen and they say, what? No, 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 it can't be her. It can't be her. And then, no, it's her, it's her. And as the whole group eventually comes to believe that it really is Adele standing in front of them singing, they begin to weep and laugh. They're laughing and weeping. And then they start to all of them sing along to the song that she's singing. And I, and I, I just can't get around how much that is the story of God. Jesus, you know, God comes and he takes on a different nose and a different chin and a Jewish accent. He takes the name Yeshua or Jesus and he comes and he stands in line with us. And as he begins to sing, you know, sings out this song. And as we recognize him, we begin to weep and laugh and sing along to the song of eternity. It's this beautiful thing. You know, things change when they believe it's Adele. There's a moment that changes for them when they really do believe it's her. And Jesus says, if you know me, you know the father. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. And then Jesus says, and he charges them to believe. He says, believe me when I say I am in the father and the father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So Jesus says there's two, two compelling reasons to believe. He says, me, you could believe me. I'm right here. I'm saying these things. You could believe me. You know me. Or you could, if, if that's not enough, you could look at everything I've done and you could believe based on all the things that I've done, miraculous works, all the healing, all the things he's done and said, I mean, compelling. And as, as we look at like eyewitnesses accounts uh, of the apostles, as they give their accounts, we see them in the Bible, in the gospels of this, this incredible life of Jesus. It's a life worth considering, you know, what would God be like if God came down in human form? What would that life look like? We would say the life of Jesus, that that's what it would look like. I mean, it's amazing. It's compelling. It's incredible. Someone who's angry about religion, empty religion, someone who's welcoming of sinners, someone who's healing the broken and loving the unloved and touching the lepers, meeting us where we are, who cares about injustice, who goes and saves to, to save us himself and generously gives his own life so that we could be free. Now, of course, there are lots of people who heard Jesus and saw Jesus, saw the works of Jesus, and they didn't believe. They didn't believe it was really him. And Jesus does invite belief. He's saying, you know, believe, you know, trust. And believing is a response. It's not a given. You know, different people might see even a miracle and have different responses. We might, someone might be hesitant to believe and someone else just might believe immediately. And, you know, and so there's a response, a choice we make to believe, to come to the place maybe of believing. 
So my discussion, my second question is this. Why do you think some people have an easier time believing than others? So it seems like I think sometimes that for some people, it seems easier for them to believe or maybe in the context of like some people just seem like they never doubt. They're just they're so certain. And then others of us, maybe we go up and down and we're like, you know, I have some moments of doubt or I'm struggling, you know. And so why do you think for some people it seems easier than others to believe in what's there for us? Um, So we can. We can see and believe God. And then also we, we see that belief moves to action. Belief moves to action. Uh, there was a guy named Charles Blondin in 1859, and he was a tightrope walker. And he was the first one. So other people have done it. I think 11 people have done it. But who to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope was Charles Blondin, the first guy. And... Uh, it's like a quarter mile long. It's 160 meters above the falls. So pretty scary. I, lo- I watched a few recent videos of tightrope walkers across things. It's like, it's a bit scary. Anyway, like a bit scary. I would never, ever get close to that. But um, Blondin, he, he did it. And then he did it a bunch more times. And each time he went to do it, he wanted to make it more exciting and more like the feat to be more stupendous. And so, you know, the next time he crossed on stilts and then the next time he did it on a bike and then uh, he did it blindfolded, he did it shackled. He would do all these different ways of crossing. He did it crossed with like a wheelbarrow full of potatoes or like just crazy things where, you know, as if it isn't enough to walk across the wire, just yourself. And then finally, you know, and he'd get these big crowds out and, and one day, um, he says to the crowd, you know, as he's going to do this, he says, who thinks, who believes that I can carry someone on my back across the falls? And the crowd's like, yes, we believe you could do this. You could do anything. You know, like they loved him. He thought he was so great. And, and then Bonin says, well, who then will volunteer to get on my back and be the person I carry across? And of course, <laughs> the hands go down, right? <laughs> like, it's one thing to say you believe Blondin can do this because he crossed on stilts last time or something. It's another thing to say, I'm going to be the person who goes on your back and that you carry across. In the end, it was Harry uh, Colcord, his friend and his manager, who got on his back and Blondin carried across. And Blondin said to him right before they crossed, he says, Whatever you do, if I sway, you sway, you're a part of my body. You do not do anything I'm not doing. You just become part of me. And then he crossed the falls with a guy on his back. Like that is belief. Harry's belief in Blondin, his real belief, resulted in action. It resulted in real trust and action. Believers live it out. Jesus says after the foot washing, Or he says, uh, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. That's what Jesus says here. And James chapter two says it this way. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith by itself, if it doesn't have action with it, is dead. Or, Or in John 13, 17. So right after the foot washing, Jesus says, now you know these things. You will be blessed if you do them. 
You know these things, but you'll be blessed if you do them. These aren't separate things. They are connected. Belief and action are linked together. If you really believe this Jesus, it should change your life. You will become like him. It should show in your character. It should show in your day-to-day decisions, in your day-to-day life. We should be able to see Jesus more and more coming through. Now, how does that happen? It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, I'm about to leave and I'm sending the Holy Spirit. So next week, we're going to talk about that. That's the whole next section is about the sending of the Spirit. And that's how our lives are transformed and begin to reveal Jesus. But Jesus in our passage then makes like a blank check promise, like some pretty massive stuff. Jesus makes this radical promise. He says this, they will do even greater things than these. Or he says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. Or you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And I just feel like this creates some problems for us. I don't know about for you. This creates some problems for me. I mean, how do we understand these promises? How do we understand these words? Why doesn't the vending machine work when I put the prayer token in then? If any, I just can put it in and the name of Jesus token and out comes what I just asked for. Isn't that how it works? Like not for me. So I'm wondering like, this is a bit of a problem. What do these promises mean? Now there's a number of different understandings of them. One understanding is that Jesus didn't mean we're going to do greater works in power, but in extent. And the way that's explained is like on the very first day, the Holy Spirit comes, the apostles do greater things than Jesus. When Peter preaches and thousands of people come to faith, that's already greater. And then they go out into the world and the church expands throughout the whole world. And that's greater in extent than Jesus who had 11, you know, 12 disciples and a few other followers. And like, it was small already. The extent is greater. So that's one understanding or explanation for what Jesus means here. It's true. I think, you know, can we do something greater than raising someone from the dead? I think that that's kind of the pinnacle of like great and miraculous things is like, if you raise someone from the dead, that would be like, Wow. Okay. You know, so in that sense, I think it's true. There's an extent more than we're talking about, like, we're going to do cooler things than raising people from the dead, which is kind of the top of the level for me. However, the second understanding is that by the power of the spirit, we are called to the same things as Jesus and the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy spirit is alive in us to also demonstrate works of power in the world that by the power of the spirit, people would come to see the truth of Jesus. And so, you know, there's the story of John Wimber who taught a lot about signs and wonders. Someone came and said, you know, after one of his talks, they said, well, I haven't seen anyone healed. So what do you make of that? And John Wimber said, well, how many people have you prayed for to be healed? (laughs) It's like, "Hmm, good question. You know, I pray in my room a lot, but have I laid hands on someone for them to be healed? And how many times have I done that? Because that's different. And so, you know, however you wrestle this out, the truth of it is that those who believe in Jesus 
will live in a way that reveals the father. And I do believe that it's both in extent and in power that we're meant to walk in, in both these things. We pray for healing and we, we pray that we will see people healed and dead people raised. I'd love to see that. I haven't yet, but also in extent that the gospel goes out and the world is transformed wherever I am because the kingdom comes in and through me as a believer. In conclusion, Jesus is our clearest view of God. Believing this results in action. We know and we see. So the invitation is to know God, the mysterious and the unknowable made known, because Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. We know what God is like. He's like Jesus, just like Jesus. And even demons know that Jesus is God. And so the belief that leads to trust is different. This is what Jesus invites us to, to believe he is God and to trust his grace and receive his forgiveness and allow it to transform us. But real belief doesn't end in theory or intellectual ascent. It it moves us to action. It's going to change the way we live. It invites you to get on the back of Jesus and cross the Niagara Falls, (laughs) trusting that he really can do it. Jesus's promise to send us out in power isn't a genie in a bottle that we just rub and say, in the name of Jesus, and everything happens exactly as we want it to all the time. But it's a promise that he's going to be with us, and he's going to move in power and in presence, and that when it's in line with the kingdom and his will, he will act. And we can believe and trust that he's doing this to transform the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. Uh, I thank you for these words that, that encouraged your followers, your disciples, and that encourage us. And um, even as we move into next week about this, the Holy Spirit and what that means for us, Lord, we're, we're encouraged that, um, that this journey is about seeing you and knowing you and walking out what it means to believe that you are the son of God, that you are the savior of the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would, you would help us to believe where we doubt, where we struggle. Lord, change our hearts so that we can step out and act on the belief that you are tr- changing the world, that your kingdom is coming, and uh, that it comes where we are. And so, um, Lord, we pray that you would do this in your name and in your power. Amen.